And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the Internet now. Oh, sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Today's episode of the VanCast is presented by the Salvation Army. Your donations can help those affected by COVID-19 find help and hope. To give, ask your smart speaker to make a donation to the Salvation Army or make your gift at SalvationArmy.ca. New VanCast to get you started for this week. And Thomas, before we get into it, just want to take a sec because, uh, I mean, I want to acknowledge the incomprehensible loss of lives in Nova Scotia over the weekend. I've never been to Atlantic Canada, but it's always been on my list of places to visit. I have been to every Canadian province from here to Quebec, but not beyond. And obviously, like me, you travel a lot too. And I don't know what you, if you've been there, but from the landscape to the culture to the people and especially the people you hear so much about what makes Atlantic Canada so unique and so special and I want to experience all of that someday and I don't know if we have listeners in Nova Scotia but I'm always amazed at the reach and the the power of the Canuck brand and whether you're in Nova Scotia or from Nova Scotia or just know people from that great province I want everybody to know that we're grieving right along with everybody across this country today absolutely just a senseless day um you know, one of the worst days in, in Canadian history in terms of gun violence and, and just awful. Nova Scotia is a place I've been to a couple of times. I used to go every year, actually, uh, just to have some beers with my friends who went to Dalhousie uh, when I was in university. And, and Nova Scotia itself is truly one of the most unique, um, or sorry, Halifax itself is one of the most unique, uh, beautiful, fun cities I've ever been to. Uh, I think it's a must hit for North American travelers once we're able to travel again. And, you know, I mean, obviously just heart, you know, thoughts and prayers and, and not thoughts and prayers, but, but genuine grief uh, going out to those families affected and, and the entire community. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to put into words when it, things like that occur. Um, you know, I, I've been close to it before uh, in my time down in, in Florida and I've seen the pain up close and, and injuries up close and, you know, it, it's it's something that, you know, weighed heavily on my mind yesterday and, and continues today. So definitely for any of our listeners and communities affected and, and to any Canadians affected, to be fr- frank, because we're about as far as you can get geographically. But I think we all feel it today. Yeah, and we're at a point in time right now. I mean, look, we've talked about this for the better part of five weeks. Uh, hockey and all sports uh, certainly have taken a back seat to this global pandemic. And then, you know, you, you get this kind of news yesterday. And again, it, it just sort of reinforces that 
sports is sports and we love it and and you know for you and me uh it's what we do for a living but there are a lot more important things uh going on so i just wanted to acknowledge that right off the top uh when we talk about the things that we miss in the world of sports uh it was driven home to me again on friday night uh, as i was sitting with my wife and my wife said like oh come on we're not watching old baseball and i said hey this isn't just baseball like this is maybe uh, the best example of, you know, modern North American theater and drama. And, of course, I'm talking about the seventh inning of the 2015 Blue Jays <laughs> game uh, between Toronto and Texas. And I, I just said, like, just I don't care if you don't care at all about baseball, but, like, you just have to appreciate sort of the stakes. And I kind of set it up for her. And then she got into it. It was fun. And, and I, just to bring it back around sort of to, to hockey – you know, we've talked about what we miss, uh, just sitting in the stands and shooting the shit and talking and the social aspect of being at the rink, whether it's with other media guys or the players or the coaches, people in hockey. But, you know, there was so much that went on in that seventh inning. And, I mean, everybody remembers it for the homer and the bat flip, obviously, and the comeback. Uh, the bench is emptying, not once, but twice. But what I had forgotten as I watched that the other night was the pressure of the playoffs. And that's another thing that, you know, I just miss at this time of year. And I had forgot that the Rangers basically booted the first three balls that the Jays put in play in that inning that set oh, yeah. them up to have the kind of inning that they did. Yeah, Elvis Andrews um, just yeah. kicking it around out there before, you know, uh, was it Dyson? Dyson was the pitcher, right? Yeah, he came in. He and came was in. the guy that he, gave up the home run. Yeah, and, and, then, and then, you know, sort of covered himself in urine after how Jose Bautista hit it out of the park and, and schooled him, um, handled it like a mature adult. So, yeah, no, I mean, look, that was a tremendous drama. I also saw, you know, I was thinking about the umpire, right? Like the umpire of that inning where it's like you're, you almost feel like you're losing control of the crowd. Like you have to, you have to. Like, you know, any on-ice official wants to have a sort of sense of control over the game. But in that moment, right, the reaction of the fans, the beer cans being thrown, I mean, there was there was like a sense of, you know, that was like an old school, like you hear about the Chicago crowds, the old school Chicago hockey crowds where there'd be like fights in the stands and on and on. Like that was one of those moments where it almost felt dangerous, you know, and sure. and for that umpire, that must have been such a terrifying, you know, moment. Like you talk about pressure. I think that would have been a really tough one for him, but you sort of look back on it, and one thing that strikes me when I think about it is, man, he he really got that call right. <laughs> like he got a really esoteric call right in a really crazy moment, and it almost had you know terrifying consequences. But you know, respect respect to the ump who who nailed the call on the you know chew throwback uh, throwback from Russell Martin there. Right. Dale Scott was the the man behind the plate. Uh, yes. And Russell Martin, too, you know, it, it looks like maybe he's going to be the, the goat in all of this as uh, Texas gets the, the go-ahead run. And I had forgotten, too, as, you know, Batista's rounding the bases and the bat flipping everything. And there's Russell Martin, like, you know, hands together, sort of praying as if, like, thank God I'm off the hook uh, in all of this. <laughs> so it was just another great moment. But But just back to my point about, you know, those were routine ground balls. But playoff pressure does crazy things. And whether it's Chris Campoli, you know, off the glass and into the glove of Alex Burroughs instead of off the glass and out to center ice, you know, like that's what I love about this time of year is 
the stakes are so high. And when you talk about like that fervent fan base, like that energy in the building, you just can't replicate that kind of stuff during the regular season. Like sure, you'll get a handful of games throughout the regular season that are bigger than others. And we say, oh, the stakes are high tonight. But, you know, playoff hockey is just a completely different animal. And then that sort of brings me to this notion now of, you know, we keep hearing it. If hockey is to return in the summer months, you know, it's going to happen to empty buildings. And it's just to me, like I was watching that the other night and thinking like, how, how in the world can you play the highest stakes hockey with nobody in the crowd? Like what could that possibly look and feel like? Yeah, it's, you're right. That's, it's really tough to wrap your head around. And, you know, I see a lot of, you know, I see a lot of people on, Twitter, podcasts I listen to, just as I consume hockey news, people are like, why has the NHL not just sort of decided to cancel the season? And I I kind of feel similarly on occasion. Like, if it was the offseason, at least we'd have some news, some predictability. And, you know, I think we're all hungry for that in in these uncertain times. But, you know, when I think about – and I was thinking about this a lot last week when I was sort of going through the last week of normal for that JT Miller piece, like – some of what we were talking about and thinking about and t- discussing in that last week has no relationship with the situation six weeks later, right? Like it's it's like the world turned upside down. And in the case of the NHL, like we're talking about a league that was looking at or forecasting conservatively uh, an additional billion dollars of revenue over a three and a half month span. And now they've gone to zero, right? And so we're talking about things like Oh, maybe if the cap goes down a couple of million dollars or maybe if players pay 35% escrow or, you know, what this could look like if hockey returns next season without being able to be played at some point this summer. And, you know, I do wonder if those sort of formulations may seem quaint. Like when you think about how unthinkable some of the decisions governments, businesses, individuals have had to contend with over the past six weeks. Like, it's impossible for me to not think that at the end of the day, the NHL is an entertainment business too. And there are owners like, you know, you think of Tom Dundon, who runs Topgolf, right? Like, those Topgolf's not open. You know, like, there are going to be owners significantly affected. And I do, I'm beginning to wonder if the NHL can't return this season, could we be looking at something more dramatic and steep in terms of what the league even looks like in the event that it's able to return for 2020, 2021, um, then we're even discussing from this vantage point because based on how the last six weeks have unfolded, you know, I certainly suspect that that's possible. And, and, you know, I'm beginning to sort of get my antenna up for news that really seems more dramatic than anything we've been discussing to this juncture. Like forget comp picks, forget sort of compliance buyouts, forget $2 million rollbacks. Like, could we be seeing something more fundamentally different, especially in the event that A, this season can't conclude and B, next season has to start without owners benefiting from any gate revenue? Like, certainly, certainly it makes sense as I think about it, turn it over in my head, say it out loud that, you know, things may have to be more dramatically altered um, than anything we've been anticipating through the first six weeks of this sort of social distancing phase of our of our pandemic lives. Right. And, and like for the last few weeks, I've kind of thought to myself, 
you know, just scrap the season, set a draft date, set a date for free agency, try to get your off-season business as close to usual uh, in the new normal as possible, and be ready to go in the fall. But then you start to hear from more and more experts that this idea of large groups gathering into the fall is unlikely. And so, you know, we're talking about hockey and all sports coming back to empty buildings. Uh, It wouldn't just be for the conclusion of this uh, interrupted 2019-2020 season. Like, it is sounding very real now. Like, uh, next year might have to start up with, you know, no crowds in the stands. And that speaks to your point. Like, all of a sudden now, kind of all bets are off in terms of financial models and projections and what does that do for the cap? Not just this year uh, and this off season, but then for again, years to come. That's next, right, right. So dead on, I, and, and that's troubling. Like if you're a manager, you're just sitting there, and like, look, we can kick around all these hypotheticals we want on podcasts and on the radio, but you know, in the real world, which still exists for Jim Benning and his counterparts, like you know, trying to sign these free agents that they've got, uh, not knowing, and right, probably won't know for a while still you know, what that that upper limit of the salary cap is going to be. I do wonder if a week like this will have any impact on the National Hockey League because the biggest event in in sports since uh, things shut down and since really the world's been on hold uh, will take place this week with the National Football League draft. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if the NHL looks at this, and I'm sure they'll be watching, you know, the nuts and bolts of a virtual draft very closely because oh, yeah. they're going to have to execute one themselves. But I do wonder if, you know, the attention that the draft is going to get and, you know, I mean, the NFL draft is a big deal. We saw that last year in Nashville. Remember, 250,000 people packed onto Broadway just to be there, and it was going to be that and then some uh, on the strip in Vegas this year, obviously. I, I was the, there the, that weekend, j Pat. Were you? I was, yeah. We, I was there for a bachelor party that weekend, and it was nuts. <laughs> there was also a teachers' conference, and uh, and things were wild. Like the the price of hotels, the crowds at the on Broadway at the honky tonks. Like it was ludicrous. I mean, it was a great time, but it was wild. Well, you know what they say about teachers in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> I think they say it about everybody in Nashville. <laughs> that is true. Yes. I shouldn't just single out the teachers. But I, just, I, I wonder if, you know, like the NFL would dominate the news cycle regardless, even if the Stanley Cup playoffs were going on, that NFL draft, you know, would be top of mind in almost every major metropolitan market. Uh, but I wonder if the NHL watches and sees the attention and the coverage it gets. And I look, I get that the league is holding out against all hope of getting some games to recoup some revenue. But um, I don't know, man. Like the, just with every passing day, I, 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 I look. Nobody wants hockey back more than I do. Trust me. But I also sort of just I've tempered my expectations now so low. Uh, I just I don't see it. Like you know the idea of. I don't know how many Canucks Swedes went back to Sweden, but we certainly know that a handful of guys are in the States during all of this. Like, until borders open. Like, that's the, you know, nothing can happen, obviously, until the borders open. And then international travel, and there'd be quarantines for guys that are coming from out of country. And, you know, I know it's it's getting to be late April here. There is still some time, but, man, every passing day... Uh, to me, it just feels like it's more and more uh, unlikely that yeah. they're going to be able to they're going to be able to resume this season. 
Yeah, and I, I tweeted out an article last week from that epidemiologist slash SEC football blogger, and he went really deep into the biodome approach that a, that a league could attempt. And, you know, I read that, and I, I mean, I sort of had an understanding of the elements of what that would take, but I didn't really have it uh, fleshed out. I certainly didn't have a fleshed out understanding at the scale that an epidemiologist who also knows sports really well would. And, you know, the main takeaway that I had was, man, I've seen enough zombie movies to know, like, all it takes is one flaw in the system for everything to be shut down, right? Like, all it takes is one support staffer to have a positive test, and you've wasted, you know, millions and millions of dollars to trying to put this event on, and and nothing can happen until everyone's retested and re-quarantined and on and on. Like, it just, it's hard to see how that's realistic, but when you consider the stakes, when you consider what the league would otherwise be looking at, in a world with 3.5 or $4 billion revenues and, and what that does, you know, to HRR, to the upper limit of the salary cap. Like, you know, I mean, can you imagine a world where teams are looking at something more dramatic, like a 60 million or a 65 million? Like, could the cap era be taking a step back in time five, six years? Uh, you know, I hope not. I mean, I think that would cause significant havoc and, and would probably mean that players are taking the types of pay cuts that a lot of us are. And, you know, no, I don't think anyone wants that. But, um, you know, it's it's just a wild sort of situation and, and one that as time passes almost, you know, as time passes and as the curve flattens locally for, for Vancouver listeners anyway, right? Um, you know, there's an anxiousness, I think, to begin to return back normal. But what's been odd is as these six weeks have played out, I feel a lot less certain. Uh, I think we are just becoming better schooled in, you know, sort of the biological forces that we're up against, how unpredictable those are, and and the fact that even the best designed biodome system can't cheat, uh, you know, what's essentially a, a virus looking to replicate itself inside a host. Transfer, we dedicated an entire podcast recently to the likely cost of re-signing both Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes. And, you know, we came to the conclusion that it's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 mil, at least in old world dollars. But, you know, again, when you talk about rolling things back and pay cuts, I mean, you know, maybe that's the one way that those numbers won't get as high as, as we had thought. But uh, you've taken the next step in this story. I mean, regardless, those guys are getting paid. That much we know. Um, but you've written a story that's published today about what the Canucks are getting for the money that they're going to pay these guys, basically the bang for the buck. Um, and an interesting analysis, you've basically broken it down into uh, forward and defenseman combos, right? The most effective yes. pairings. Like, we're not talking Dreisaitl and McDavid. They're both forwards. No. We're talking forward and defenseman. And as young as these guys are, they're just getting started, and I'm talking about Hughes and Pedersen, but nobody does it better in terms of goal generation and goal differential than those two guys. It's crazy. Like it, So I, I just set out to build – every now and then I like to build weird cohorts just to see how certain players that I cover day-to-day compare with the rest of the league. And I, I decided I'd look at the top-scoring centermen on each team, right? Just just sort of get a sense of, of – how they were used a, a little bit and and what results they managed at five on five when they shared the ice with the defensive teammate who they played the most with during the course of the season. And what I found was that 
Pedersen and Hughes not only led the league by shot attempt differential, which which I sort of would expect just based on the way that they tilted the ice, but also by actual goal differential and, and not by a little bit. Like they're number one by a bullet by goal differential. And, you know, I can get into a few things that I didn't sort of get to in the article that I, that I think are interesting. But one thing to note is not only did I break it down by these categories, but I, but I broke it down by a few others. And realistically, they were top top of the heap most of the time and top three at worst, uh, regardless of what metric you prefer. And the other thing I did was I looked at the percentage of ice time. So the percentage of Pedersen's ice time that Hughes spent with him at five on five was about 42.8%. That's 13th out of the 31 players in this sample. It's also higher than where they were when Harmon Dial did a similar analysis just on Hughes and Pedersen earlier in the season, they were at about 38%. And that was the highest proportion that any forward had with any defenseman. So in, in December, the Canucks were conscious of the fact that Pedersen and Hughes make, you know, good, good music together. Like they improvise well, uh, let them riff and began to use them more. And that accelerated even further to the point that it brought the average up 4% by the end of the season over the last two, two, three months. That's a, that's pretty good because the way that the Canucks run the bench, Travis runs the forward matchups and Nolan Baumgartner runs the defensive matchups. And those guys are on the same page. I mean, they, you know, Nolan's clearly Travis's guy. They spend a lot of time together, but it's still two guys coordinating to achieve that result. And one reason why, anecdotally anyway, I don't think that they played a higher percentage of that ice time together is, is that in December, Hughes began to be used in a matchup role. And as we've discussed at length on this podcast in the past, Pedersen was still, especially when the Canucks controlled the matchups a little bit better at home, Pedersen was still ideally playing a secondary matchup and sort of building up that goal differential. Now that's context for why they had the best goal differential among these pairs in the league, right? Like a lot of these pairs, you look at Weber and Deneau, you look at Ekblad and Barkov, you look at Kopitar and Doughty or O'Reilly and Pietrangelo. Like those guys are guys who play toughs. And that's easier for coaches to match their ice time together because it's just like opposition's best comes on, you guys go out. And those were sort of the pairs that played closer to 50% of the center's ice time with their top defender. Uh, the Canucks, to up the amount of time that Hughes and Pedersen spend together on the ice, will need to move to a model where Pedersen plays straight up. Now, whether or not that's a goal they want, I mean, clearly the proof's in the pudding. Like, their approach worked here, regardless of the percentage of ice time that they spent together. But, you know, as Pedersen matures, as Pedersen becomes more trusted defensively, I think we were going to move to that, to seeing that at length down the stretch anyway, based on... Vancouver's deployment in that Islanders game but as that occurs they'll be able to spend even more ice time together than they did this past season and then we'll be talking about a world where you know 600 minutes for the Canucks every season are spent with Hughes and Pedersen together you know moving the puck around playing catch doing these crazy things to open up seams that they do and you know I think that's going to be a really interesting thing for the Canucks to sort of use utilize uh, figure out how to weaponize essentially as they look to beat teams and, and take a step into being a real contender. I mean, that's fascinating. And if people haven't seen it, that post is now up at the athletics, so you can get a chance to sort of read along and, and delve in a little bit deeper. Uh, I think what has to excite Canuck fans though, is 
you know, and I mentioned it earlier, like it just the, the youth factor of these two guys uh, to be at the top of this chart. Like, you know, we now have a baseline for Quinn Hughes, but there is still room for improvement. Like there are areas of his game that he's just going to get better simply by being in the National Hockey League. He seems like a smart guy, an observant guy. Like, you know, some of the things that he picks up, uh, I mean, that that to me uh, is probably the, the most exciting part of all of this is that they're already at the head of the class and both of them in theory should be getting better here for the next bunch of years. Yeah, I, I, for sure. Especially because of their capacity for learning, right? And the way that they... Yeah approach it so differently and that's sort of what that was really the impetus for the article like I, I kind of built the cohort just because I was messing around on my spreadsheets as I often do but the you know imp, the thing I really wanted to write was that when I talked to Pedersen about what's occurred in game or what work he's done to improve this area of his game or even when I asked him Jeff about how often he was missing high right he has detailed explanations for it right like really detailed and Hughes tends not to. Hughes is just like, no, I just made the play. Like, no, I, there's nothing specific I did. I, I've just been watching. Like, no, I don't watch a lot of video, but I watch a lot of hockey. And when I see someone do something smart and cool, I put it in the bank and I use it later. You know, there's this gap or this divergent nature that they both got where Patterson's like super detail oriented and Hughes is, you know, sort of the natural. And yet through that, they kind of come to this same place, like, through very different approaches, they reach this area on the ice where they're both just high. Like, these are not imposing physical specimens, right? They are not driving their success off youthful attributes. They play they play old games. Like, they are spatial problem solvers first and foremost. And that's another sort of thing that's exciting and interesting is, you know, two years on or two and a half years on since the Sedins retired, like, these guys are... Two guys who enhance the force that one another brings, just like the Twins did, and do it almost in a similar geometric way. It's just that they're not both forwards. And and that's sort of something that I began to pour over and, and, and become fascinated by and, and that I wanted to explore and, and sort of kind of try and give fans, too, a sense that a sense of the personalities, uh, you know, that have led these guys down very different paths to get to the same place where they you know, clearly make each other and the team better. Just as long as they don't beat each other up uh, as roommates, because <laughs> as you point out, Pedersen's neat and tidy, Hughes, as we have heard from many people, the, the cleanliness. Uh, if there's a knock on Quinn Hughes, I think we found it. It's uh, the guy's a bit of a mess. <laughs> I love it. Um, the, one, last, one last point is, you know, and I, I didn't want to get into it because I wanted to stay focused within this article, but if the, if, Hughes and Pedersen outscored opponents by 17 when they were on the ice together, right? And the Canucks were outscored by four overall at five on five throughout the season. That means in all other minutes in which Hughes and Pedersen weren't both together on the ice, the Canucks were outscored by 21, right? So if you're looking for a quick path to improving your club, like you can start there, right? You can look at that and say, well, we need to find a way to have, you know, a better second pair. We need to find a way to have you know, a forward depth that holds that holds its own better. Um, again, I think part of this is that the Canucks used a fourth line that was often deployed in tufts. Uh, they certainly fed Horvat to the Wolves as they've had a habit of doing throughout his NHL career. But, you know, figuring out how to improve that minus 21, like we're minus 21. This is our baseline now. We're minus 21 
when Hughes and Pedersen aren't both on the ice together. We're plus 17 when they are. You know, if we've got these two guys who are going to help us outscore opponents regularly, we need to get them more help. We need this army to sort of raise that floor for us because even if we're only being outscored by two or three, like that, that makes us one of the best teams in the league if these guys can continue to replicate or even improve on the league best results that they managed as 21 and 20 year old players in the NHL this past season. Certainly building blocks. We know that the question for Jim Benning and his staff, you know, how do they get better uh, up against the economic, uh, you know, roadblocks that that they're going to find themselves. And again, not knowing what the cap is, but you know, it's not about just maintaining your own UFAs. It's about trying to improve this hockey club. But certainly uh, as you've pointed out with this piece, I mean, there are two absolute uh, foundational pieces to build around for uh, the next bunch of years. All right, uh, let's finish up. It's that time of the podcast. Uh, Your turn to, and I kind of feel like this might be a revenge match today. Uh, Name that Canuck. Uh, I got you last week with, uh, uh, we've gone back and forth here. Steve Bernier was my guy last week. Uh, And it went down to that third clue and and, and you got it. So uh, it's your turn. I am bracing. I'm prepared. I've gone difficult. Fe- I'm not going to lie. I've gone. I've gone with a difficult one. Like I was yeah, saving see, this one in my back pocket. And, that doesn't and surprise now, me in the least. Yeah. Well, also, it's just like you know, it's it's time, right? Like it's time for me to roll, <laughs> you know, roll two lines and two pairs and try and get back in the game, right? Like that's okay. that's where we're at. So, so yeah. I just fair warning. This one's not one of my one of the easier ones that I've got, but. I've decided, so here's an overarching clue before I get into the actual ones. I've decided to build it around spotlighting what is one of the weirdest seasons in Canucks history. Individual. Alright. First clue. Among all, there are nine players in Canucks history who've scored 40 goals or more over the course of a single season. Of those nine players, 15 seasons in total... This guy scored 40 goals with the lowest plus minus in Canucks history. And it's a minus 35. Okay. Uh, hmm. I would say Tony Tanti. A good guess, but no. Okay. Clue number two. This season was so weird that not only is it the lowest plus minus among 40 goal scorers in Canucks franchise history, but... With 16 assists, he tied Rick Nash for the NHL record. Fewest assists in the history of a 40-goal season in, in, in league history. All right, so now there's like a historic perspective to this. <laughs> yeah. Um, hmm. uh, Rick Blight. Ooh, no. A good guess, though. I like that. Did he ever get right. 40? I don't know if he got 40. He, uh, he did not. Not, no. well, not with the Canucks anyway. Okay. All right. Finally. This gentleman was drafted by the Canucks in 74. He was traded to the Toronto Maple Leafs before the 82 Cup run. Okay? And no. the last five name, five, the, or the last five letters of his name spell out, last name, spell out the name of, you know, one of the giants of hockey gear manufacturing. Oh, Ron Settlebaum. There you go. All right. 
Okay. That's Good a weird season, him. right? 40 oh, goals, 16 yeah, assists, I, minus 35. 1978-79. Okay, I didn't realize the Rick Nash, like the historical significance. That uh, Was it 40 goals on the number? So he scored 40 on the number. Rick Nash, I believe, had 42, but let me verify that before I uh, leave our listeners, you know, uh, <laughs> ill-advised. But he shares a modern-day record along with uh, Rick Nash for the fewest assists in a 40-goal season with 16. Oh. So these are these are Cy Young winners extraordinaire. 41 goals, 16 assists. Rick Nash had a 57-point, a weird 57-point season in the 03-04 season. The things you learn on the VanCast. Uh, another thing I, I need to... Do we know who the Canucks are playing in the second round of uh, we the do now. playoffs? It's Vegas. Oh. Of course, it's ah. Vegas. It's Marc-Andre Fleury. But... Remember, on Earth 2, the Canucks have home ice advantage, so we'll see how it goes. Right. Won the division, of course, yes. So. Yeah. All right. Well, we look forward to seeing how that one plays out, and uh, we'll see what the, the world hands us here in the days to come. We'll be back with another edition of the VanCast a little later in the week. Before we go, a uh, quick reminder, former Canuck Ben Hutton is the guest of Shane O'Brien and Josh Cooper on Point Breakaway this week at The Athletic. And uh, as well, make sure you rate and subscribe to the VanCast on Apple. If you click on the show URL, theathletic.com slash thevancast, you'll get 40% off your subscription. Good stuff. Transfer and again, uh, check out uh, his article posted now at The Athletic on uh, Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson, the dynamic duo. Uh, that's up and available to all subscribers and all readers uh, at theathletic.com. All right, uh, we'll reconvene. We'll do this later in the week. Sounds good, Jay. Pat. All the best. There you go. For your answer, it's J-Pat. Thanks so much for listening to another edition of the VanCast here at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.